This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. Jacinda Mania swept through the world in 2017. A young, charismatic New Zealander was appointed leader of the Labour Party just months out from an election. I will never stop believing that politics is a place where we can do good. Her campaign made global headlines when she was asked whether she might want to have babies in office. Can you do this job? Do you want kids? Uh, What about this whole question about, you know, uh, work and babies? The fact she then had a baby in office while dealing admirably with significant domestic and international crises only cemented her stardom. New Zealand's baby wait is over. Jacinda Ardern giving birth to a beautiful, healthy baby girl, 7.3 pounds. But lately, as Ardern and the New Zealand Labour government are faced with familiar challenges, is her star showing signs of tarnish? Today, I'm talking to Head of News Mike Tisher and International News Editor Bonnie Malkin about what makes Jacinda Ardern so popular abroad and how she's faring at home. It's Friday, the 29th of July. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Amazing that I get top billing. (laughs) Good morning, Bonnie. Hello. Hi, Gabs. Hi, Mike. Welcome to your first ever Newsroom Edition, Bonnie. You're the international editor, and we don't often talk about international politics on the Newsroom Edition. But Something from New Zealand has really caught our attention this week and it's about Jacinda Ardern, who is a very popular figure among Guardian Australian readers. So can you tell us what's going on? Over the past few months, as we've been reporting, Jacinda Ardern and the Labour Party are kind of slipping down in the polls. I'm not sure if um, you remember, but back in 2020, the Labour Party was handed a kind of historical mandate. They had a fantastically successful election and for the first time since 1993, were able to govern without coalition partner. So governed in their own right. It was a huge win and Ardern was considered to be a brilliant leader. But over the past kind of 12 to 6 months, things have changed. There's a cost of living crisis in New Zealand that's really chipping away at um, the popularity of the government. And we're getting to the point, we're now about a year out from another election where it's starting to bite. And Mike, Jacinda Ardern wasn't just popular inside New Zealand. She was also enormously popular outside New Zealand. Why do you think that was? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Initially, when she was first elected, she was probably more popular outside New Zealand than inside because when she first became Prime Minister, Labour didn't have an overall majority, had to govern in coalition, as is normally the way in New Zealand. But to Australians particularly, I think she came across as a breath of fresh air. She's very young. She's very articulate. She was presented well at media conferences. She was on the liberal end of the spectrum, which for Guardian Australia readers at least probably seemed extremely attractive after many years of conservative government in Australia. So she promised radical, you know, sort of extreme radical change in New Zealand, but a change along the lines of what many of our readers would want to uh, see in Australia as well. So she seemed like this 
beacon. And what was then, you know, that was in the middle of the Trump years as well. It felt like a, a kind of unusual election globally and one that held out some kind of promise for what might be achieved, at least in Australia, if we had such a figure, uh, which we did not <laughs> and do not. <laughs> Inside and outside New Zealand, a phrase Jacinda Mania was coined at the time. Mm. She was on the cover of Vogue, etc. So she definitely had a moment. Mm. Obviously, that was reinforced then by winning government with increased support in 2020. But I think as perhaps we will go on to discuss, that had as much to do with the circumstances of the pandemic and the sort of conjunction of, of events as it did with any particular things that she'd done to reinforce that image that was established early on in her prime ministership. If you look back at her first term, she had these kind of incredible challenges, didn't she? She had the Christchurch massacre. This is one of New Zealand's darkest days. Clearly what has happened here is an extraordinary and unprecedented act of violence. Um, she had the White Island disaster as well. The volcanic eruption on New Zealand's White Island looked like hell on earth. The explosion of scorching ash, steam and rock, leaving 21 people dead. And then COVID, and you know, she's absolutely fantastic in a crisis. That's that you know, that's not disputed at all. She kind of brought the country together after Christchurch, implemented sweeping gum reform that won her so much praise. And that's why I think, you know, she won with such an incredibly strong mandate in 2020, and you know, why it's kind of interesting to see what's happening with her standing and Labour's standing now. To a large extent, those crises also drew on the particular qualities that had endeared her to people outside New Zealand particularly, or, but also inside, which were kind of empathy, you know, being very articulate and responding in a very human fashion to deep crises, you know, horrendous crises like the Christchurch Massacre and White Island and then COVID in a slightly more sort of drawn out, but a way that also demanded that sort of empathetic response that people felt was talking to them in their, you know, in moments of quite, uh, moments of despair often. But maybe there are other issues that have now more recently come to fore that demand other qualities which have proved more testing for her. Yeah, let's talk about those for a minute, Bonnie, because she did have some very grand promises at the beginning, which some criticism says that she hasn't really acted on well enough. Can you just outline what some of those promises were? I think you could say that she did kind of come to power on with the promise of transformational change in New Zealand. I think I think that's fair. You know, she famously said that climate change is the biggest challenge of our time. And she also spoke initially a lot about child poverty. That was the reason she got into politics. On child poverty, there's, you know, certainly some of these very, very difficult to move targets have moved in the right direction under Ardern, which is an achievement. Um, with climate, it's been more difficult. Her government has failed to deliver any meaningful reduction in emissions in New Zealand. New Zealand's one of the biggest per capita emitters and um, it's got a very powerful farming sector especially dairy I think it's kind of two themes at play one is that the left are disillusioned you know they thought that this was going to be the Labour government that brought in um, great social change great environmental change but now as lots of other countries New Zealand's in the grip of a you know a terrible terrible cost of living crisis inflation's at the highest point for 30 years food prices are soaring and the housing crisis which was another thing that Arden you know vowed to take on you know housing's incredibly um, unaffordable inside New Zealand because of the cost of living issues housing prices are coming down but they're still so far out of reach for, you know, the majority of, you know, young New Zealanders. Um, so these are big intractable issues that are not moving. 
And Bonnie, how much is the strength of the opposition playing into this dip in popularity for Ardern and her Labor government? I think the 2020 election was kind of unusually a strong level of support. So what the Labour Party's kind of dipped down to now is is a level of status quo, really, where the two major parties are battling it out to then be able to kind of form a coalition with minor parties. And nationals have been in disarray for the past few years. They've had a series of different leaders and it's all been very messy. Now they seem to have landed on Christopher Luxem. He's a former ARNZ CEO and he's kind of calmed things down and united the party and he seems to be sticking around. He appeals, I think, in terms of kind of economic management because he's got a background in business. He is shaping up to be, you know, a serious contender. And Mike, obviously some of these problems, the housing crisis, the cost of living crisis really ring true in Australia. Is there a lesson for the Labor government here from what is happening in New Zealand? You'd want to be cautious about drawing too many exact parallels. Mm. These are problems that are reflecting pretty much every developed country in the world, but we're all at diff- slightly different points on the on the curve, I think, in many ways. As New Zealand's gone, they started raising their interest rates before Australia did. Their housing crisis kind of hit. Prices went up and then down again in a similar way to Australia, but perhaps as even more extreme way than it, than it's happened in Australia. But there are obviously similarities. There are similarities in the way they dealt with the pandemic, being geographically isolated. They were able to close their borders, had that kind of feeling of more or less being able to act normally. WA particularly, it's kind of feels a bit the same where they went through the pandemic with by shutting people out, essentially, which caused a lot of pain to the people who were shut out, but allowed the people inside to live a more or less normal life. And was an incredibly popular. And was extremely yeah, popular, yeah, as it was in WA. We saw, mm-hmm. you know, an absolutely massive landslide in the state election there um, based largely on their pandemic response. But now that that's over, that obviously presents a whole new set of problems. So for Labor specifically in Australia, they'll be only too well aware that expectations of a Labor government coming to power after a long period of conservative rule are going to be ones that they can't possibly match Mm. because their current economic global circumstances are such that makes that even harder than they would have been otherwise. So, yeah, they will be looking at her poll ratings, I'm sure, and taking note of them. But I don't think with any particular specific thing that she's done or not done that they will be able to learn from, I don't think. Mm. It's just a matter of picking your way through, achieving things that can be achieved, putting to one side ones that can't or moderating expectations on ones that can't be fully achieved. Australian Labor will have been well aware of that before they came to power, uh, regardless of what happens in New Zealand, I think. And Jacinda Ardern and Anthony Albanese have met. Okay, thank you very much for joining us and I'm delighted to welcome Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. In what seemed quite pleasant circumstances. (laughs) And my personal friend from New Zealand as well. I thank it was in stark contrast, wasn't it, to the um, the kind of very um, thorny press conference between Scott Morrison and Jacinda Ardern at Kirribilli House a few years ago, where they both kind of stood in the grass outside Kirribilli House in the wind with the harbour in the background and kind of, you know, it was you could cut the tension really with with a knife. It was it, They were not friends. And, you know, Albanese and, and Ardern do seem to have warmer relationships. I think they swapped some records when Jacinda Ardern came over. And I think there was a bit of kind of funny back and forth about the choices of, of Australia. Australian New Zealand music that they exchanged um, and obviously you know they're both from the same side of politics so um, they would certainly have more in common I would imagine. 
Bonnie, as international editor, you have reporters in New Zealand and readers outside of New Zealand. Does Jacinda Ardern's huge popularity outside of her home country impact the way we cover her and her government? It does. I mean, we have two brilliant correspondents inside New Zealand, Tess McClure and Eva Corlett, and I think it's really, really important for us to make sure that we are letting the rest of the world know about the very intricate and nuanced problems inside New Zealand. So yes, the top line is not the story that I think a lot of the world would like to hear, but that's the story of New Zealand and that's the story that we have to tell as well as, you know, as well as the brilliant things that are being achieved. It's a complex picture. And it's difficult. Her sort of image on the international stage also plays into her image at home, doesn't it? I mean, she was, she's was she been overseas in the past few weeks in the US meeting Joe Biden and giving the commencement address at Harvard and she was at the NATO summit in Madrid and in Brussels and, you know, sort of on the world stage, as leaders obviously have to be from time to time, and there's been a whole succession of events where it's perfectly normal and natural for her to be, and that probably burnishes her image overseas, but at the same time, it's natural for people in New Zealand when the leader's overseas to feel a bit neglected and wonder if the problems at home are not receiving the attention that they deserve from the Prime Minister or the President, whoever it may be. And we've had that little bit with Anthony Albanese in Australia as well, that he had a whole succession of overseas events in the very first weeks of his Prime Ministership and that was all fine. But then as the cost of living crisis started to bite even more, you did start to hear at least murmurings that said, well, you know, maybe it's time you should devote attention to your own back backyard and in fact, Ardern was questioned about that on, on 7.30 in Australia herself, wasn't she, by Sarah Ferguson. How does it feel to be more popular um, abroad than it is at home? Again, as I say, my total focus is at home. And she was not impressed by that question. I don't think she gave a very... I mean, she gave the obvious answer, which is that her full attention is on domestic issues, but I think you can tell she didn't like that question at all. Yeah, I think it's interesting that just the gulf between how well she's received when she's um, outside of the country and just the reality of governing at home. You know, it's a really big gulf. It's, it's. I think, you know, we last saw it with Obama, maybe. Mm. And you can understand that. You know, she's a brilliant communicator, especially when she went to America in the wake of the more recent school shooting and, you know, was able to talk about how she legislated to control firearms in New Zealand. That's something that a lot of Americans could only dream of. But that's not an issue anymore in New Zealand. That, you know, they've moved on. Mm. Jacinda Ardern's style of politics, which you've both talked about today and which is such a big part of her appeal, has been dubbed the politics of kindness. Please tell me this isn't dead. I don't think that style of politics is dead necessarily. You know, it's served her really, really well. Mm. It's just that she's now facing a different kind of crisis. It's certainly not dead, but it only takes you so far, doesn't it? Kindness, you have to show it through the impact of your policies, and that's much harder. And I wouldn't say that New Zealanders are kind of, you know, that we get any sense from the polling that, you know, she's like massively unpopular. Mm. It's just that her support's fallen. As Eva, um, one of our reporters, put it, we've gone from Jacinda mania to Jacinda meh. Yeah. <laughs> Next, European vacations and local watering holes. Now we come to what you can't get out of your head. Mike, what stuck in your mind this week? So my story this week is about 
a local and cheerful, happy story uh, local to me, which is uh, Bridget Delaney's story about the Petersham Bowling Club. And it's a really nice story about the club's anniversary, uh, which they're celebrating this weekend, and about how it was reborn from this kind of bowling was going out of fashion. The solution offered was to get more poker machines in, as some other clubs have done in Sydney. But people took it over from the local community who rejected that way forward, reinvented the club as this hub for local people, brought in families, local music and other events, and just a really nice optimistic story. Oh, it's so nice to have a hopeful good story. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Bonnie, what couldn't you get out of your head? Mine relates to the kind of particular feeling of when you live in Australia um, and it's winter here and um, all of your friends and relatives go to Europe and have a fantastic time and can't stop posting Instagram pictures. It needs a German word. It's a really strange and unique feeling and it's very uncomfortable. But there's one person slash creature who's been having a wonderful summer in Europe who I um, am happy to look at unending photos of um, her exploits. That is Freya the walrus who has been... um, (laughs) causing trouble in Norway. She's very, very heavy. She is 600 kilograms and she likes sunning herself on yachts in a fjord (laughs) and often sinking them. And she sleeps for 20 hours a day. And we've described her in our story as enchanting, but unwittingly destructive. (laughs) And that's just a summer holiday that I am. I'm quite obsessed with this week. Fair Freya. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. Uh, Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Bonnie. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannan. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Full Story will be back with you on Monday. We'll see you then.